Um, the important thing to say before I say any more about him um, is that this is the second of the public lectures in the Humanitas series on intelligence studies. Uh, and this, of course, is the first year of um, the uh, having a uh, Humanitas professor in intelligence studies. Um, just to explain a bit about the background to the program, um, it is a series of visiting professorships uh, both here at Oxford and at Cambridge, um, intended to bring leading practitioners as well as academics to both universities in order to address themes in the arts, uh, social sciences, <coughs> and humanities. Um, it was created by Lord Weidenfeld, who was with us on Monday night, um, and the program is managed and funded by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue with the support of a number of benefactors um, and in collaboration here in Oxford with the Humanities Division. Um, in this particular case, uh, the support for which we are particularly grateful comes from the Bavaknik Family Foundation and from the Reconati Kaplan Foundation. And it's a great pleasure that Tom Kaplan, who, who is himself a Pembroke man, uh, is with us here tonight. Um, as I've said, General Mike Hayden has probably become a far too familiar figure. No, far too familiar. A wonderfully familiar figure. Uh, sorry, Mike, I'll get that right next time. <laughs> a wonderfully familiar figure uh, over the last uh, three days. Um, he is a United, or was a United States Air Force officer, uh, commissioned in 1969, um, uh, specialised in intelligence uh, in 1996-7, uh, was uh, commander of the, uh, the Air Intelligence Agency and in 1999 became director of the National Security Agency, a post he held to 2005. Um, in 2004, um, <coughs> after the 9-11 attacks, um, the intelligence services in the United States were restructured, the post of director of national intelligence was created uh, and General Hayden became the first deputy director of national intelligence in uh, 2005. Uh, in 2006, uh, he assumed the office of director of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, remarkably, but not uniquely, uh, as a still uniformed serving officer. Um, and he remained almost to the bitter end of his time as director of CIA as a four-star general um, when he finally retired from the United States Air Force at the very end of 2008. Um, and he remained director of the CIA until uh, the change of administration uh, and the election of President Obama. He is currently a distinguished visiting professor in the School of Public Policy at George Mason University, um, and uh, as well as a principal at the, uh, of the Chertoff Group. Uh, his subject tonight, uh, the second of his public lectures, is Terrorism and Islam Civil War with a, the threat. General Hayden. Well, good evening, and thanks for the opportunity to once again come and, and chat, share ideas, and, and, and certainly join in the general conversation for which we'll leave plenty of time here this evening. As you said, 
the topic terrorism and Islam's civil war, whether the threat is kind of my shorthand as to um, what are the big ideas here? I mean, what are the broad concepts that should be governing our behavior in, in terms of the threat uh, to the West, to Great Britain, to the United States, to other countries uh, from terrorism? And, and it's, this is all about Islamic terrorism. I, I realize there are other flavors around the world, but that's the, that's the topic that I have here. And, you know, tactical success and, and operational efficiency um, actually can hurt if you're not pulling or pushing in the right direction. So, so, so we, what's the broad scope of things within which we should make these very specific tactical and operational decisions? So that's, that's the, the, kind of the kinds of thoughts that I want to share with you tonight. Um, let, me, let me begin with my country prior, prior to 9-11. And 9-11 was a, a failure on, on many levels, but it was certainly a failure of imagination. We, we did not comprehend evil so great that could be visited uh, upon our homeland. If you recall the, the actual story of the summer of 2001, uh, George Tenet, the director of CIA, pretty much had his hair on fire all summer. I mean, he was, he was running around the national capital region talking to anyone who would listen. I mean, George's favorite phrase was, the system is blinking red. Uh, out at NSA, we were intercepting communications, and we got up to just under three dozen intercepted messages during the summer of 2001 that suggested imminent attack. Now, it, you know, strategic warning, not tactical warning, not this day, this time, this place, these means. But we, the, the system was was certainly. As George says, blinking red. We, we underestimated our enemy. Uh, the assumption was there would be an attack against American people or American interests. Because frankly, that's what Al-Qaeda had done in the past. We didn't rule out an attack on the homeland, but, but that certainly wasn't the focus of, of our efforts. And then, the attack on the homeland took place, and we had to align our big ideas with the evil which our imagination prior to that had been inadequate to contemplate. And, and what we did, what we did, I mean, th 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 this, was, this was both automatic and conscious. I mean, we knew we were doing it, and yet the response was instinctive as well as, as cognitive. And it was simply this. The law enforcement approach to this problem is inadequate, and the big idea is we're going to treat it under the laws of armed conflict, in addition to the laws of domestic law enforcement. Okay. That was a big idea. And that's, as I've already suggested, the kinds of things I, I, I want to stir conversation about here tonight, because we can, we can debate whether that was a good idea then, and if it were a good idea then, is it still a good idea now? Uh, you recall the label we gave to this, we're approaching this in addition as a, to a law enforcement matter, we're approaching it as a laws of armed conflict matter. Uh, President Bush called it the global war on terrorism, remember? And Washington being Washington, we turned the, 
the first letters of that word into an acronym and kept using the phrase GWAT. You know, we used GWAT for how long? Seven and a half years while George Bush, while George Bush was president. An awful lot of people have criticized that big idea. Number one, laws of armed conflict. Number two, a war on a tactic, a war on a concept, a war on something as nebulous as terrorism. Okay. But I have to mention right, that one of the great achievements of the Royal Navy was spending the first half of the 19th century as the global hegemon in that era, making war on the global slave trade. And there are, there are parallels between the actions of the Royal Navy in the first half of the 19th century and the action of the United States in the first decade of the 21st. When your Navy captured 1,600 slave ships on the high seas through its own authority, self-defining slavery as piracy. You freed 150,000 slaves. And you actually overthrew a couple of uncooperative governments on the west coast of Africa. So before we jump to conclusions about whether that was a good idea or a bad idea, maybe we ought to think it wasn't a totally new idea that the model had been used before. So when we went, we went forward with the war-making model, American warfighters divide the, divide the fight into the, the close fight and the deep fight. And they mentioned this the other evening. The close fight, the close fight is taking care of that guy who's coming through the perimeter wire and he's already convinced he's going to do you harm. The deep fight has more to do with the production rate of those kinds of people who may want to do you harm in 3, 6, 12, 18, or 24 months or 5 years from now. And, and I, would, I would suggest to you, I take some measure of satisfaction, that, that we did actually very well on the close fight. The invasion of Afghanistan for its original purposes was, was an undeniable success in, in the close fight. Uh, the work of my agency, CIA now, uh, in taking terrorists off the battlefield and making them unable to threaten people here in Great Britain or people in the United States was, was an unarguable success. My, my most intimate contact with the, with the close fight uh, took place in late 07 and the first half of 2008. Uh, so I'm, I'm director of CIA now about better part of a year. And our analytical line was that because of some Pakistani government decisions, sorry, I don't mean to pull you into a very detailed knothole here, but. Um, President Musharraf had decided to pull the Pakistani army out of the tribal region in late 2006, early 2007, in a plan given to him by the governor of the federally administered tribal areas, Governor Araksai, in essence pulling the government out and allowing the, the, the local leadership of the families and tribes in the area to, in essence, handle federal law enforcement, including taking care of the foreigners who were living there, foreigners being a euphemism for Tajiks, Uzbeks, Arabs, and so on, that were members of Al-Qaeda. And, and from that point on, the tribal region <coughs> became more and more of a safe haven for Al-Qaeda. By the way, you can, you can connect the dots here quite conveniently, by the way, to the resurgence of the Taliban also 
in Afghanistan based upon the decisions to move the Pakistani army out of the tribal region in 06 and 07. Uh, we argued with President Musharraf. It's hard for me to argue with the president, but uh, we actually, myself and my DO, happened to be in Amman, Jordan at the same time and uh, as the president of Pakistan. And he very kindly uh, agreed to come, let us come to his hotel. And we kind of said, you know, we really think this is a bad idea. Uh, and he politely listened and said thank you and kept up, kept up the policy. Well, what happened then after that, through 07 and into 08, was that al-Qaeda was taking advantage of, of the safe area. And we actually saw a resurgence of al-Qaeda training camps. And, you know, kind of not quite on the scale of Afghanistan, but certainly on a scale that we could detect. And we began briefing President Bush on this and began to point out that there were graduating classes in the training areas in the tribal region. And what was most troubling was that most of them were Western passport holders. Okay. Uh, the phrase I used, I think, with the president was, you know, kind of people you wouldn't look twice at if they're standing next to you in the passport line at Dulles coming, coming into the country. And so we, we, really, we really talked the president through the first six months of 2008. Remember, we're still talking about the close fight. Those people who are still, you know, already committed to coming after us. And, and we actually talked the president into a much more aggressive use of the resources of the American government to use the euphemism, take terrorists off the battlefield that began about the 7th of July, 2008. And then with the election of President Obama in 2009, that program continued pretty much at the same rate in 2009 and spiked up in 2010. And frankly, we've been remarkably successful in the close fight, taking care certainly of al-Qaeda prime, al-Qaeda along the Afghan-Pakistan border, an absolute shell of its former self. So I, you know, I'm kind of standing in front of you saying, hey, close fight, not bad. But remember I told you about the close fight and the deep fight. So how were we doing on the deep fight? Eh, not so much. And the deep fight, the production rate of those who will be convinced to do harm to you in a year, or two, or five years, was very, very difficult for us. Um, you know, we had this close fight, deep fight thing in the Cold War. I realize it wasn't as kinetic as what I just described for you, but, but the dynamics are, are pretty much the same. What was the close fight? The close fight was the British Army on the Rhine. The close fight was the American Corps outside the Folder Gap. And you hold, you hold there while you take care of the deep fight. And the deep fight in, in the Cold War was, by and large, ideological. Okay? It was, this is a really stupid theory of history and an even worse theory of government. And if you read George Kennan's X article, I mean, we're, we're, we're playing out the playbook. You know? Don't let them expand. The internal inconsistencies will cause the system to collapse because it is internally incoherent. And just don't let them expand. Close fight, hold, deep fight, ideological. Now I'll translate that to the current war. Close fight, take care of people who are already convinced to kill you. Deep fight, equally ideological. But it's an ideology about which we Westerners have very little legitimacy to argue. I mean, for, for a Westerner to, to take the deep fight about the meaning of the Quran, 
or the significance of one or another passage out of the Hadith is to turn our argument into dust by, very, by the very uttering of it by a Westerner. Right? Now look, uh, I come from a multicultural, multi-religious society. Great Britain is a multicultural, multi-religious society. We are all, after all, children of Abraham. All three monotheisms trace roots back uh, to Abraham. We are, we are all people of the book. But our ability to influence the deep fight was, was very, very, very limited. And I can fully admit that the way you conducted the close fight wasn't isolated. It had impact on what was going to happen in the, in the deep battle, in the deep battle as well. So, you know, the big ideas matter, and we were, we were convinced that we needed to do something deep, but it was hard for us to figure out how to do that or what it was. Let me, let me present you with a, with a bit of a dilemma. Uh, and there, I, I am convinced there are people in this room who know far more about this than I do. So I'm going to give it to you just from the point of view of an intelligence officer, all right? But there are scholars here who could really help in this, uh, in this investigation. Again, we're still talking about what are the big ideas here? I mean, look, I voluntarily visited violence on other people as a military professional for the United States government. I'd like to think I was doing it consistent with a broad concept that brought us closer to safety and security rather than just random violence. Um, so, sorry, I'm circling the issue. Let me go right to the heart of the issue. The Thirty Years' War, here, in Europe, ended in 1648, Treaty, Westphalia, all that. In the middle of the 17th century, Christendom decided we had plenty of things about which we could kill one another. We did not need to keep religion on the list. And we pretty much struck religion from the list of those things about which we would visit violence on one another. Now, I realize that's too abstract, too absolute a statement, but, but broadly speaking, we decided then to separate the sacred from the secular and how we thought about society. Now, the question I have for you is, is that arc of Christendom, you know, which began in the same desert that Islam and Judaism began in and came from the same father, Abraham, is that arc of Christendom where you get to a point in your embrace of modernity where you separate the secular from the sacred, is that unique to Christianity? Or is that the predictable arc along which all of the great monotheisms will travel? In other words, will Islam get to the same place? Now, Islam doesn't have to get to the same place, and Islam doesn't have to get to that place in order for you and me to be safe, but it's an interesting question. Uh, pope Benedict, the pope before Francis, got into a whole kerfluffle because he allowed himself to uh, utter out that Islam is a far more transcendental religion than Christianity. And for those of you who study these sorts of things, you know, it came out of the same desert, same kind of mysticism animated all of them. But our Christianity gets translated through Aristotle. Our Christianity gets translated through the Greeks as it, as it moves into Europe. You cannot, you cannot point to a summa theologica in the Islamic world. 
the, the marriage of Aristotelian logic with, with faith. And, and so if, if Islam is so transcendental, are we just whistling in the wind with expectations that they're going to get to the point where the secular and the sacred are separate? I mean, I mean one of the issues we have right now with, with the most fundamentalist of, of Islamic believers is that they actually think putting an intermediary between the creature and the creator is itself sacrilegious. So what's this about voting? And so, so what does modernity look like for the Islamic world as we go forward? That's a big question. And actually, it may, or may not surprise you, it's one we actually talked about in terms of the broad strategic vision we might need to have with regard to this particular enemy in this particular war. I should add too, this is it's, it's kind of a footnote, so those who are not interested in the footnotes, those who just read the plain text, take a nap, but here's, here's the footnote. Of all the Western democracies, the one that allows the most religion in the public square is mine. I mean, we got euphemisms for it, we call it family values during our campaigns. Okay. But it fundamentally is religion in the political process. And so this separation of the secular and the sacred is not nearly as complete in the United States as it is in most Western European countries. And isn't that curious, given the United States now, the global war on terror, and a, and a great monotheism trying to, well, we'll see where it goes in this arc, because this great monotheism is, is, is running smack dab into modernity, and what is it going to do about it? Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you a couple of concrete examples that, that try to enliven what it is I'm trying to describe for you, and I've suggested two dynamics here, close fight, deep fight, kinetic, ideological, and what right do we have with the deeper ideological question in terms of the future of Islam, hence the title Islam Civil War and what it means for our security. Um, we worked at CIA, as, as MI6 does, we, we worked at CIA with an awful lot of foreign partners. Uh, I was director of CIA for about two and a half, close to three years. My wife Jenny and I went, and our deputy, Steve Kappas, my deputy Steve, went to more than 50 countries as the guests of foreign intelligence services. We do a lot of work with foreign intelligence services. Right? A lot of them are Islamic. So remember everything I've just told you. Close fight, kinetic, deep fight, ideological, arc of Islam, what does it mean? And now, let's talk about the rubber meeting the road in some of these very, very specific dialogues. Let's, um, let's go to Pakistan, a country's very existence is premised on Islam. Right? I, went, I went to Pakistan a lot. I talked with uh, the head of the ISI. Uh, Ashfaq Kayani later became chief of army staff, the most powerful man in Pakistan. Talked to, to his successor, Ahmed Chuja Pasha. We had lots of things to talk about with Pakistanis. They were actually, the first five or six months after 9-11, they were probably our best counterterrorism partner. We actually captured more members of Al-Qaeda cooperating with ISI than, than we did with any other intelligence service in the world. Now that may have less to do with the merits of ISI, and more with the fact that more terrorists were living in Pakistan than anywhere else in the world. <laughs> so I ask you, what makes a Pakistani? 
and I'm, there are probably Pakistanis here, we can take this up afterwards. Um, what makes a Pakistani? I know, I know what, kind of what makes an American, all right? It, 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 it actually is kind of ideological. It's kind of, you know, you come here, come here legally, I hope. You, you study the Constitution, you say, yeah, I agree with that. You get to be an American. And there's really no distinction between the first generation and, you know, great, great, great something or other came over on the Mayflower. You're all Americans. What constitutes a German? I would suggest you kind of blood, all right? You know, Turkish family, third generation in, in Germany, you're a Turk. German family living in the Crimea since the mid-19th century, you're a German. And, and Malah. Okay. So what's the magic formula? What's the secret sauce for a Pakistani? What makes a Pakistani? I suggest two things. One, it's not India. <laughs> and two, Islam. Okay. I was talking to an Indian official the other day, and he says, <coughs> you know, if you take away Islam from a Jordanian, he's a Jordanian. If you take Islam away from an Egyptian, he's an Egyptian. Take Islam away from a Saudi, he's a Saudi. You take Islam away from a Pakistani, he's an Indian. <laughs> Again, Pakistani friends, come on up afterwards. We can, we'll discuss. So I'm making these multiple trips to Pakistan. Again, I mean, I'm sorry to keep repeating this. The detailed war stories I hope are interesting, but it's the concept in the background. I'm making these multiple trips to Pakistan on a big C-17 with a comfort pallet in there where, where I can sleep overnight, and I got briefing books like that that could serve as ballast on the, on the aircraft as they start to change fuel out of left wing and right wing and so on. And I try to master that briefing book every time I go to see Ashfaq Kayani or Ahmed Pasha because I want to get him to do something. And we go and we have that meeting and we sit down and we, when we're talking to his professionals, I realize, you know, his country's interests and values are here and my country's interests and values are here and no, they're not like that. <laughs> they're like that. But you're trying to work in the common space. Okay? But fundamentally, I'm sorry, this is a long story, but that was a wind-up. Here comes the pitch, all right? It doesn't matter what I was trying to get him to do. What it was I was telling him was, Quit obsessing about the Indians. Now, let's you and me talk about going after this particularly virulent slice of Islam in a country in which national identity depends upon its separation from India and its adherence to the Islamic faith. Do you see how the big ideas get in the way of even detailed tactical cooperation? And I, I sad to say, you know, in the last four or five years, Indian, sorry, Pakistani society, I think, has gotten more fundamentalist, more violent, more lawless, more anti-Western, driven by the dynamics, not just of American policy, we contribute, but by the dynamics of the reality of Pakistani society that are beyond our control. Another, another example, Saudi Arabia. Now, one of the reasons Pakistan has become so fundamentalist is because all that Saudi money going into the madrasas in Pakistan that are funding a Wahhabi approach to religious education. And the Pakistanis, with the, aided and abetted by the Saudis, are cranking out very bright young men who have memorized the Quran. That's about it. That's unprepared. Remember the Ark, modernity, how do you get there? And I've got an educational system that seems to be more interested in memorizing the holy book <coughs> than in actual internationally marketable 
skills. That said, the Saudis were also good uh, counterterrorism partners. Uh, the one, the fellow we worked with was a fellow named Mohammed bin Nayef. He was son of the interior minister. Uh, he ran Saudi Mabahith, the internal security service, and when his dad died, MBN as we called him, Mohammed bin Nayef, was elevated to the position of <coughs> Minister of the Interior. He's actually in D.C. right now, and if I weren't here with you, I'd be having dinner with him tonight. <laughs> but I'm glad to be here. Um, <laughs> the Saudis, in addition to funding Wahhabi-style education, uh, kind of had a tacit truce with, um, with Al-Qaeda. Okay? Uh, don't do anything in the kingdom. And in 2003, Al-Qaeda broke the truce, and there were very serious attacks against Western housing installations inside the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and casualties were, were measured in the dozens. At which point, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine this to be true. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's true. King Abdullah turns to Mohammed, Mohammed bin Nayef, and says, and Mohammed did a masterful job of, in essence, erasing al-Qaeda in the kingdom. He began a with a list of about 100 folks, killed or captured all of them, and he made another list. And then he killed or captured all of them. Now, you can imagine, probably not through the same judicial processes enjoyed here in the United Kingdom, all right? But he was very effective at counterterrorism. But before, you, but before we get too harsh in judging the Saudis about the Wahhabi education and maybe quibbling over their methods with regard to al-Qaeda terrorist threat inside the kingdom, let me add, I'm just trying to suggest the complexity of this big idea problem, let me add that Mohammed bin Nayef had the best, unarguably the best, rehabilitation program for jihadists anywhere in the world. We went to visit the kingdom um, a couple days in, near Jeddah. Uh, we were at his, at a place on the Red Sea. My wife was with me. Um, my wife has a master's degree in counseling. He arranged a briefing from his experts in his re rehabilitation program. We sat down and he walked us through kind of the deprogramming program they had for jihadists they would capture, which kind of flies in the face of the, of the bumper sticker, arbitrary, harsh Saudi approach to, to everything. And the rehabilitation program was based upon faith and family. Faith in terms of imams visiting the prisoners and instructing them on the correct tenets of, of Islam, and family bringing him back into another social setting that was <coughs> different than the one he enjoyed, if that's the right word, when, when he was uh, on, on jihad. I mean, that's, that's a remarkable program and shows the complexity of the most conservative of Islamic countries attempting to deal with wither Islam and, and, and where, where, where does it go? Um, third example I want to give you is Egypt, okay? which is you know, certainly at, at, the, at the level of political elites, uh, not, not nearly the, the fundamentalist country that maybe some of the other ones are. All right? um, Janine and I visited Egypt in, it was late, so late 08, 2008, and I'm being hosted by um, Omar Suleiman. Omar is the head of the Egyptian intelligence service and a really good counterterrorism partner. All right, he 
very knowledgeable man. Uh, Omar, Omar actually was a wonderful interlocutor uh, with, with the Palestinians and was a, a wonderful servant to peace in the Levant by his influence with Palestinian leadership from, from Mubarak to the Palestinians. And of course, you know, the Egyptians had reasonably close relationships with the Israelis. And so you had this Arab intelligence service chief performing this, this wonderful service uh, in the cause of peace. I recall being on the Nile with, with Omar and a wonderful boat with a meal and we're down at one end and for about 90 minutes he just walked me through all of the ins and outs of the Palestinian issue. Anyway, we're visiting Cairo and at the end of the, the scheduled visit he, he says, um, General, President Mubarak would like to see you. Okay. But he will not see you on the Sabbath, which was Friday. Okay. Uh, and so you're going to have to stay over until Saturday to go out to Heliopolis to the palace to, to visit with President Mubarak. I said, well, he said, and we'll take you to the pyramids and to the Sphinx and give you a private tour of the Egyptian Museum. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we did. And then Saturday morning we went out to Heliopolis and we visited with President Mubarak. Small, small meeting, uh, Mubarak, uh, Omar. Omar had been his intel chief for 30 years. I mean, they were very close. Me, I think, I think it was the charge, I don't think the ambassador was there, and a couple of people from my staff. So I go into the room. You can actually see the room in, in B-roll clips of both Morsi and Sisi. Big chair, big couch. Mubarak's in the big chair. I'm in the big couch. And for 90 minutes, the president of Egypt yelled at me about American policy with, in the Middle East, writ broadly, but particularly about American policy towards Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood. He gave me a soup to nuts lecture on, you don't understand what's going on here. You're interfering where you shouldn't be interfering. I understand the situation. I know these people. I know how to handle these people. You people should leave me alone. And then after about 15 minutes of that, he would lean over and put his, put his hand on my forearm and say, now, General, we're both Air Force officers, so I don't mean you personally. <laughs> and then, and he'd go again. He, he criticized President Bush. He really, really lit into that woman. I, I think that was the Secretary of State, Condi Rice. <laughs> Um, again, about big ideas. He had it wrong. He didn't know about the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, he knew about it, but his wisdom was incorrect. I got this. I know how to control these people. Okay. In our point of view, his, both the Muslim Brotherhood and his treatment of the Brotherhood were a pile of oily rags in the corner, and we're just waiting for the spontaneous combustion. And yet, here, our good friend, good counterterrorism partner, relying on a heavy hand to keep bottled up both legitimate and illegitimate expressions of, of political dissent. Okay? So those are kind of, you know, like I said, the big ideas matter and they affect things. So then what happens? Well, we're right and Mubarak's wrong. Okay? The cork blows off the bottle some very unfortunate Tunisian fruit merchant in Sidi Bouzid immolates himself. And four weeks later, there are a million people in Tahrir Square demanding the overthrow of Mubarak. And, and by the way, Omar, okay, the guy I said was a wonderful 
agent of peace with regard to the Palestinians, a really good intelligence partner, and also really good at keeping his friend Hosni in power for 30 years. Okay. Omar is overwhelmed by, by this movement. Had a lot to do with cell phones and Twitter and Facebook and Al Jazeera, but that's, that's another, that's another uh, discussion. And so we end up, we end up with, with revolutions in the Arab world in practically all the provincial capitals of the Ottoman Empire. Okay? You start in Tunis, takes place in Libya, Cairo, Damascus, in Yemen. Uh, you, you get a burp or two in Bahrain. And, 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 and the dynamics <coughs> of the Arab Islamic world, which have kind of been frozen, probably frozen since the First World War. Looked at the picture of T.E. Lawrence in the, in the lounge today at uh, Al Souls. Uh, frozen since the time of Lawrence of Arabia, with lines drawn for the convenience of Europeans by Mr. Sykes and Picot. Lines in society, but which made no sense on the ground, and lines in societies that have been frozen in time and kept frozen at first by Western imperial power, and second by the dynamics of the Cold War, and third by Arab autocracies. All the corks and all the bottles are pulled. And all these, all these tensions that have been building up in this part of the world for the longest time are now unleashed. And you get a tremendous, tremendous unsettling effect. First, first effect for me in the war on terror is I lost a whole bunch of partners. Okay. I mean, Omar's gone. Actually, Omar died within a year. He came to the Mayo Clinic in Cleveland for a checkup and, and actually died while he was in Cleveland from a stroke. But even when the intelligence partner wasn't physically gone, he was mentally and operationally gone because he had a lot more things on his hands than making nice with the Americans going after some foreign threat uh, you know, you know, with regard to al-Qaeda. Um, we, we, we tried to think that the Arab Awakening, again, back to the concept of big ideas, the Arab Awakening <coughs> may give us a, okay, we'll, we'll buy the short-term turbulence, okay, but maybe it gives us long-term opportunity. Back to that, is that Islamic arc like the Christendom arc? You know, is, is the ultimate arc of, of, of modernity, the separation of the secular and the sacred? We, we don't know because there are all being kept under the thumb of an autocrat, but now when you let this go, will this be able to move in the direction of the resolution of that, of that premise? Will it, will, won't it work? Um, <coughs> we knew it was going to be short-term turbulence. We knew short-term others would take advantage of it, like Al-Qaeda. Uh, Long-term, we try to be hopeful. And I must admit I'm not as hopeful as I once was after what, watching what's happened. In, in the Arab Awakening. Let's just take a couple of them, just by way of example. Um, let's take Libya. Okay. I, I must admit, uh, Libya is a, is a confusing case. Gaddafi was not a very, very good man. I got that. Um, but you and we decided to intervene in what was the Libyan Civil War under the guise of a UN Security Council resolution for humanitarian purposes. And with the yes vote in New York, turned both the Royal Air Force and the American Air Force into the Libyan Islamic Air Force and became the Air Force of the Libyan opposition. 
which may or may not have been a good idea. It certainly alienated the Russians. It's one of the reasons why they don't play very well with regard to Syria, because they think, it's, in essence, they got bait and switch in Libya, and they're kind of right. But put that aside, okay? We worked very hard to overthrow the government of Libya. And then what did we do? I mean, if we're gonna if, if we're gonna move this society along any arc, isn't some sort of assistance warranted? And I think it's unarguable that we have been incredibly light when it comes when it comes to assistance to the so-called successor regime in Libya. So what's become of Libya? Well, you know, when you take when you take the cork out of the bottle from autocracies and allow the popular will to have deeper and more meaningful expression, certainly for the short term, the popular will kind of goes home to the things most comfortable. And the things most comfortable in many parts of the world, even in my part of the world, even in the United States, under stress, what do you turn to? You turn to religion. You turn to family. You turn to tribe. Neither of which are those broad, inclusive concepts, none of which are those broad, inclusive concepts that actually nurture broad, sustainable democracies. And the Libyans turned back to religion, eastern Libya, Benghazi. More foreign fighters were captured in Iraq from eastern Libya than from any other country on earth. And they, they came to the fore. Uh, the loss of control over Gaddafi's weapon sites meant North Africa was flooded with weapons, which actually led to the threatened overthrow of the government in Maui because of the weapons that were now available there. And frankly, anybody still in this business is scared to death of where the hell the SA-7s are, uh, the manned portable air defense missiles, and what they, what they might do. Egypt, Egypt, remarkable, remarkable chain of events there. Um, a million people in Tahrir Square, a lot of people in that square sound an awful lot like you and me. And when you, when you, when you listen to the folks there, all right, it, 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 it kind of encompasses in its language and, and, and kind of in its background thoughts, things that are familiar to us in that arc I keep talking about, the arc that Western Europe and Christendom went through. Right? Um, unusual revolution. Um, you know, it usually takes a pretty long time to get a million people to do anything simultaneously. I mean, it really does. And, 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 and in that period of time, things generally happen. Okay? Like <coughs> leaders emerge, and organizations get created, and platforms are developed. And going in positions are thought through. And bottom line positions are agreed. This revolution happened so fast, it skipped over all those processes and went to a million people. And the million people did what you'd expect it to do. It overthrew the government. But because it didn't have that period of growth, those people who, broadly speaking, I'm really being a bit cartoonish here, but I think there's truth to it, broadly speaking, kind of think like you and me in terms of the relationship of a human being to a state, they were out of business once Mubarak was out of business. And the history of Egypt since Tahrir Square One is a contest for control by two powerful groups, neither of which were in Tahrir Square, the Muslim Brotherhood and the Egyptian Army. And what you've seen serially is each group, the Brotherhood first, the Army second, take control and revert back to autocratic type once one religious-based, the other based just raw power, and does not begin to build the inclusive society that, again, might advance us along the arc along which the Western 
countries have, have developed. Um, Tunisia was a lot better. Yemen was probably worse. And that then brings us <coughs> to Syria and, and what's, what's going on there. You know, as an intelligence officer, it's really good to get the facts right. It's actually kind of your ticket for admission. But if that's all you do, you're, you're, you're really not going to last very long in the business. I mean, it's hard. It, trust me. I was involved in that Iraq WMD thing. It's sometimes hard to get the facts right. Okay. But beyond getting the facts right, you really got to tell the policymaker what the story is. Okay. What's, what's, what's the narrative? What's the dominant narrative? And I actually have seen a migration in both reality and reflection of reality thinking in, in what's happening in what's happening in, in Syria. All right? The, the revolution in Syria began kind of in, in, the, in the same lane as Tahrir Square. I mean, we, we all viewed it, we all viewed it through a very narrow lens, that lens being on a cell phone camera, okay? Because that's how we learned about the revolution. We viewed it through that narrow lens and we saw we saw essentially what we believed to be Democrats versus autocrats. And, and immediately, instinctively, we went on the side of the Democrats, the same way we, we, we shaded dramatically in the direction of the people in Tahrir Square against, against Mubarak, the people who were demonstrating against Ben Ali in, in, in Tunisia. Okay. By the way, if, 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 you're, if your dominant narrative of that thing in Syria is Democrat versus autocrat, and what you've got is an autocrat behaving in a very in humanitarian way, that suggests a certain policy preference, doesn't it? I mean, if you believe what's going on there is autocrat, democrat, inhumane treatment of innocent civilians, it kind of suggests I'm, I may want to come here and put my thumb on a scale because, well, after all, that's a very bad thing. But there are alternative narratives available. Okay? By the way, the humanitarian autocrat, democrat thing, it's true. There's no question it's true. Let me tell you what, what also is true. Okay? It's a sectarian war. You've got 11% of the population fighting for survival, the Alawites, trying to continue to suppress the 60% of the population that's now comprised the opposition, which are the Sunnis. And by the way, to really put an exclamation point on this thing that it's a sectarian war, you've got 30% of the population on the sidelines. The Christians, the Druze, and the Kurds, not involved, and in fact, if you made them vote, probably vote for the old regime because it's the devil they know rather than the devil they don't know. So, by the way, it is a sectarian war in addition to being an autocrat-democrat thing and a humanitarian catastrophe. But I'm not done. There are other narratives. Okay? This is actually a Sunni-Shia thing with, with the Shia states or statelets, putting their thumb on the scale in favor of the Alawites, and the, and the Sunni monarchies putting their thumb on the scale in favor of the Sunnis. I mean, this has become part of that, that broad conflict between Sunni and, and Shia Islam, with Iran and Hezbollah supporting the regime, and the Saudis and the Gulfis energetically supporting the, the Sunnis. That's a third narrative. By the way, it's as true as the other two. And then there's a fourth. The fourth is that the opposition 
each day that the fighting goes on is being taken over more and more by Islamic fundamentalists and that the fighting in Syria has become the magnet for jihadists worldwide that once the fighting in Iraq had been. The Director of National Intelligence, Jim Clapper, testified in front of our Senate yesterday, gave the numbers of about 125,000 in the opposition, 25,000 or so Islamists, and of those about 7,000 are foreigners, and of those hundreds are Europeans. Okay? And so now the narrative here, the fourth narrative, which is as true as the other three, is that we stand a very good chance of fundamentalist Islamist opposition tied to Al-Qaeda taking over Anbar province in Iraq and the eastern Syrian desert and creating a Sunni stand, a fundamentalist Sunni stand, that will roughly resemble Taliban Afghanistan pre-9-11 but unlike Afghanistan, which is frankly in the middle of nowhere, this will be in the middle of the Middle East, 150 miles from Damascus, Beirut, and Jerusalem. And that's a fourth narrative. So pays your money, takes your choice. Which narrative do you want to use to, to construct your national decision making? Because they're all correct. But which one you pick will determine where you go. I've actually been quoted on Al Jazeera, English, um, saying that this situation is so bad that of, of the potential outcomes of the current Syrian conflict, of the potential ones, you know, the, 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 the ones that, that form the frame of options unless somebody outside does some really big external energy to, to juggle and jiggle what's going on, like intervention, all right, or arming different parts of the opposition or creating a safe zone in northern Syria adjacent to Turkey to give the opposition some geography, something they had in Libya that don't have in, in Syria. Unless somebody does something really powerful, really externally, I am, I am reluctantly forced to conclude that the best of the possible options for the current conflict in Syria is Assad wins. Because if he doesn't win, those other guys do. And I already described for you what that circumstance looks like. Let me get back to the big, the big idea things um, and, and you know, how, how we need to, to think about uh, these problems. When I used to travel through the uh, Middle East, it, it, was a, it was a routine travel pattern. You hit the Israelis, and then, and then you'd run, run yourself through the, the, Saudi, or the uh, Sunni states. So maybe it would be Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, or Israel, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, okay, They're just kind of, kind of the rhythm. Um, I will tell you in all of the stops, just, I'm talking Israel and the Sunni states, right? In all the stops, we would talk for about five minutes at the beginning of our conversation about the Arab-Israeli dispute. And whatever time we had left, and generally it's 55 minutes or the rest of the day, okay, we talked about the Iranians. We talked about the Sunni-Shia divide. The Israelis, obvious views towards the Iranians. The Sunnis, maybe less obvious, but no less deeply felt. I would sit in the room with King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia, who very graciously allowed CIA directors to come talk to him directly. I think he appreciated the help and felt we were pretty, fairly straightforward in, in our conversation. Um, 
His Majesty would give me five minutes on the Palestinians and then immediately shift to what was really on his mind. And, and when he started, he, he was talking about the Iranians and the kingdom. And as he got really warmed up, he started calling them the Persians. <laughs> and then when he was really good and loose, he made no pretense. The Shia. So in this, in this great discussion of big ideas, all right, and, and what, are, what are the tectonics out there that are, that are moving around that should shape how we think about the war on terror, I would suggest to you that the new fracture line in, in the Islamic world, particularly in North Africa, the Levant, and the Gulf, is far, far and away not Arab-Israeli. It is absolutely the organizing principle for all of the contention and conflict in the area, absolutely, is Sunni Shia. And our policies are going to have to take, take cognizance of that and, and be aware of it. I was actually asked by the Al Jazeera reporter, he said, you know, I actually think you Americans now have the best of all possible worlds. Oh, okay. Uh, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you have cleverly arranged for Sudi fanatics to kill Shia fanatics and vice versa for the indefinite future in Syria. I congratulate you. <laughs> He's actually right. I mean, that's not a, I mean, there's some merit to that if one can divorce oneself from one's conscience and, you know, in, in one's sense of humanity, in, in one's sense of the horrific uh, human catastrophe that is, that is taking place um, in, in Syria right now. I'm going to stop in a minute to let you ask questions, but let me just check to make sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I need to do this. So, so the Economist, back in October, has a wonderful article. It has a map of, El of, of, you know, this part of the world, and it shows where Al-Qaeda is. And in the article, uh, the Economist uh, points out that Al-Qaeda at this moment controls more territory and has more adherents than at any time in its history even though I told you we did pretty well against those guys in Pakistan, and we did. So they're less capable of the mass casualty attack, but they actually control more territory and have more adherence. And then, then they had a map in The Economist that, that showed where they were, and you, you know where they are, okay? It's in Yemen, it's in Syria, it's in Somalia, it's in Libya, it's in the Maghreb, it's in northern Mali, it's in, it's in northern Nigeria, and, and so on. Um, the Economist is right. More adherence more territory. But there are subtleties. Again, do, can, we, can, we, can we get the big, big ideas right before we start applying heat, blast, and fragmentation somewhere in the world? Um, if I had a map up here, and I, I did Pakistan, Afghanistan, all the way out to Mali and Nigeria, and I'd, my army buddies would say, do the big hand little map briefing, you know, the, the big sweep. Um, as my hand went from east to west, the flavor of Al-Qaeda would change. With, with, still Al-Qaeda, okay? But with Al-Qaeda in Pakistan, in that first group I told you about, they're already coming to kill you. Okay? They're committed. It's about global jihad. It's about the resurrection of the caliphate. They have the chance to do you harm. They're going to do you harm. The further west you go, though, the more local considerations become stronger in the calculation of the local movement. Okay? Uh, Somalia, clearly Al Qaeda, no question about it. All right? But frankly, they eat Ethiopians 
a lot more than they hate Americans or Brits. All right? It's driven, driven by that. Until finally you get way out here in northern Nigeria with Boko Haram, and it's far more about memories, besides bad Nigerian governance, far more about memories of a 17th or 18th century black Islamic empire in what is now northern Nigeria than it is about the global jihad. So the question my government has, yours a little bit, but mine certainly, is how much of an American face, if you truly understand the nature of Al-Qaeda now, how much of an American face do you put on suppressing, I couldn't think of a better word, but bear with me, suppressing those movements as you go from Pakistan out to northern Nigeria? No downside killing the people in Pakistan. They're already committed to killing you. You're not going to make it, you're not going to make it worse. But the further west you go, a premature action to interrupt or to interdict, a premature action to suppress with an American face may actually accelerate that local group's definition of the United States as the enemy, or may even actually create that definition where it would not have naturally <coughs> occurred. And so there's an argument there saying, hey, hang, hang back here, big guy, be careful. On the other hand, since they're all very proud of wearing the Al-Qaeda brand franchise thing, the further west you go, less powerful, less pure Al-Qaeda, but that's a pretty good description of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula four or five years ago. And so if you don't act, and thereby run the risk of putting an American face and creating an enemy where one may not have naturally been created, if you don't act, those groups may actually grow in strength and become more than local and regional and maybe even begin to get global pretensions and then you're going, ah, why didn't I do something when they were weak and vulnerable? It's one of those questions that make me delight, delighted that I am retired <laughs> and, and not in government. I'm going to bring one more thought to this. Again, back to the ideas matter, and we've got to get the ideas clear here before we go tell young Americans and young Britons to go visit violence on somebody. Um, you all familiar with the Benghazi thing and our ambassador and September 11th and Chris Stevens and the other three Americans? You know, that's been a, that's been a constant thing in the American press, right? And not just Fox. It's, it's actually gotten, you know, <coughs> some, some of the other things being really, really involved. Uh, I, I've told my friends, my friends at Fox, this is a play in three acts. You're, you're, all focused on, you're all focused on act two, which is how come you didn't do something in those eight hours? Any of you people here with military experience know once you're in those eight hours, you are a victim of circumstance. You know, your, your ability to affect it is controlled by what it was you did before. And so I'm, I'm quite willing to say, you know, those eight hours could go real south on us real fast without anybody being real stupid. Now, I am concerned about the first act of the play, which is why in God's name didn't you read the tea leaves with regard to how dangerous a place Benghazi was? And the other real debate taking place in the United States is, what's the story? <coughs> how come you didn't, was this Al-Qaeda or not? All right, and I mean, and there really is. It's daily on the news, whether this was a terrorist attack by Al-Qaeda or not. Okay? Uh, two, days, two, days, two days after the attack, I was on CBS News. Somebody said to me, was this a terrorist attack? Oh, yeah. Well, why did you think so? Uh, you know, crew served weapons. <laughs> Uh, you know, not the, not the normal thing you take to the local demonstration. Um, registered mortar fire, sequenced attacks, 
fairly complex movement of troops? Oh, yeah, there's a terrorist attack. Who did it? Who did it? Well, I was talking to Charlie Rose. I said, Charlie, I kind of divide Al-Qaeda into three groups. You got Al-Qaeda Prime, you know, the Pakistani thing. Okay. You got Al-Qaeda affiliates, and then you got <coughs> like-minded. I said to Charlie, I'm pretty certain this was either high-end like-minded or low-end affiliate. And frankly, that's, that actually kind of stood up. That, that's probably where it is. Sorry, too self-referential. I'm telling you the story because that what is Al-Qaeda question, I'm sorry, I just spent 60 minutes of your life bringing you to that point. But everything I've said is, what is Al-Qaeda today? How do you really define the enemy? Based upon, again, the civil war within Islam, based upon all this turbulence uh, within, within the Islamic world. You know, you got fights between autocrats and Democrats. You got fights between secularists and religious folks. You got fights between Sunni and Shia. You got fights between Sunnis and Sunnis. And they're all going. And they all affect the answer to that question I just asked you. Who is Al-Qaeda? And then the follow-on question becomes, what should I do about it? And with that, I'll stop and open up the question.